and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, howdy, howdy, howdy. So glad you guys are here this morning as we continue in our worship together in the study of God's Word. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 3. My name is Paul Trimble. I'm the senior pastor here at Bentry. Well, let's go ahead and get those Bibles out. Maybe something to take notes with. I always find that helps me when I'm listening to a preacher go, remember what God talked to me about in that. So write down any notes we have, but also what the Holy Spirit may just whisper to you in this stuff. Uh, God has got some really good stuff for us today. Amen? Are you ready? Are you ready? Here we go. In a 2005 book written by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton titled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. They interviewed, check this out, 3,000 teenagers who had been raised as Christians in a Christian church. And what they found among these young people is this system of belief on these five statements. Here's what all these teens kind of coalesced around these five statements. I want you to see what you think. Number one, these teenagers said, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's what these American Christian teenagers said. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible by uh, most and by most world religions. Number three, The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. How are you doing so far? You you tracking with what these teenagers are saying? Here, number four. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God God is needed to resolve a problem. And then number five. These teenagers said good people go to heaven when they die. How do you feel about these belief statements? These doctrines of what these teenagers had come out of these churches with. This is what they'd grown up through. Now, these are not non-Christians. These are Christians. What the authors of the book did is they kind of boiled even these five statements down to this kind of three-word statement to kind of sum up all these five. Here it is. Moralistic therapeutic deism is what these, these teenagers believe. Now, I know this is a lot right off the bat. You don't need to write any of these down, but you can. Go with me on a minute as as we look at this because it's going to tie into what we're going to preach about today. Here's the phrase, what these things mean. Moralistic, living a flexible sort of morals, sort of good that are generally accepted by society as being a good person. Make sense? How about this? Therapeutic. A set of religious beliefs that will make your your life better so that you will be happier. Deism, a belief in a kind of God that created the universe but isn't engaged in the details of individuals, individual lives. This is my observation too. Most people that call themselves Christians in the United States... Believe this at some level. Maybe if this is you today, people with this worldview see the gospel message as something good. As something good that if you believe in Jesus, things will be a little bit better for you. 
The general thought is that if you believe in Jesus, that belief will help you be a better person, that you'll be nicer, you'll, you'll be well-liked, that your home and work life, you'll get along better with people. The way you live this belief out is that just add a little bit of Christianity, good stuff, into your life, and you'll be a good person. Like, go to church once, twice a month, try to act nice. As long as you don't kill somebody, you're in good shape. This kind of doctrine says that if you're more good than you are bad, then that kind of outweighs the bad, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, take a moment. Is this what you think is true? Be honest with yourself. Is this your worldview? Is this your paradigm? The way you look at the world. By the way, if this is true of how you live your life, it will show up in your actions. Now what I'm not saying is that the way you live saves you. What I am saying is the way you live will reveal what you actually do believe about life and about God. Think about it. If moral, moralistic, therapeutic deism describes your brand of Christianity, here's what I would like you to do. Compare what you believe about the gospel to what we're going to read today in John chapter 3, verse 16. And as we've worked our way through the gospel of John in this series, verse by verse, climbing this mountain, we're picking up today in this very famous verse. I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to know this verse. You see it at every football game somewhere, right? John 3.16 has been uh, been called the Bible in miniature or the gospel in miniature. Now, here's the danger in me preaching about John 3.16 is that people that hold a moralistic therapeutic deism that believe they're Christians, they hear this verse and it's almost like a, a poem to them. Or a nursery rhyme. They go, oh yeah, I know that. But they've never thought about the words. Today, what I want you to do is to grab hold of really comparing what you believe with what John 3.16 is saying. And compare that to what we find in Scripture. What Jesus is saying. Well, let's jump in. Let's jump in. But first, let's go to God in prayer. And ask God just just to help you pray and um, think through this stuff. Would you bow your head? Father in heaven, we come to worship you. We worship your great name. We worship you for what we see in this beautiful creation and in our lives, God. But God, it's not just creation we see you. You have given us your revealed worth in scripture, the Bible. We see your worth. We see who you are. God, we pray that you take this scripture. You'd show us how to respond to it. God, we worship you that you have given us faith to believe. And most of all, God, we just worship you. Give you praise and thank you for the gift of love of your son as a gift for us in the work and person of Jesus Christ. God, it's my prayer that you would just work in your Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, to just reveal this written word to us. Help me to preach your word. Help me to disappear. May your word become forefront in our lives. May your word just challenge what we believe. Help us to get rid of just bad doctrine in our head. 
and our heart. Grow us up in you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen. Well, if you can, would you stand in reverence for the word of God being read today? Listen closely to these words as I read our text for today. We're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. Anyone who believes is not condemned. In him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Uh, You may be seated. Thank you, God, for your revealed word. There's so much here. We're going to drill down to verse 16. But let's, let's look at verse 14 through 18 for reference. That's why we put those together. Now remember, Jesus is addressing Nicodemus, the leading Pharisee of the, of Israel. This is the lead teacher. Jesus is answering Nicodemus' heart question, how do I see the kingdom of heaven? In other words, how am I saved? And and from verse 1 to verse 13 of chapter 3, he's been answering that question with a statement. To see the kingdom of God, you must be born what? Again. But in then verse 14, Jesus tells us how that salvation will occur. He said that he will be lifted up on a cross and become the curse of sin. A perfect sacrifice for sin. So that anyone who would look on that curse, look on Jesus, would be saved if they believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. They would be saved from their sin. Verse 15 says, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Then look at verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now the reason this verse is so power packed with meaning is because it describes God's love for us. Now last week we looked at the depth of what that phrase for God loved the world in this way. What that meant. Let's think about that for just a minute. What we talked about last week. Remember at one level, the general call of God to all the world that says, repent of your sin, turn to Jesus and believe. That's the one rail of that railroad track into infinity. That it's man's responsibility to believe. To turn to God. The call goes out. But at the very same time, there's this other track to believe that God is sovereign in that we don't have the response ability. Do you see what I mean? Now, because before we are born again, we don't have the ability to respond to God, even though the call goes out. And although we don't understand how these true uh, two tracks relate to each other, we go with what Scripture teaches from Genesis to Revelation. Both are true. So for day to today, let's turn our attention to his love. It is great love that he's demonstrated for us, isn't it? The greatest of loves. 
It is in fact so great that we don't comprehend how great it is. Let's start there. How do we know that God loves us? Based on this scripture. I've heard people say a number of answers. They say, well, we know God loves us because there's love in the world. People love each other, at least a little bit. And God is love, interesting concept, but that's not what the verse says, is it? How do we know God loves us then? Because of the mountains? Because of the beauty of the earth? Now, I've got to tell you, this one comes close to me, in my opinion, because it's an element of truth. I mean, if you read in Romans 1, you see, well, we can see God in his creation, can't we? We see his greatness because there are some beautiful, wonderful things in this world, and many of them I really, really like. I could say I know that there is a God who loves us because he has given us tacos. I love tacos. But that is really not describing the depth of God's love for us. What does it say? Write this down. We can know that God the Father loves us because he has given us his only son. Period. We can know that God the Father loves us, his children, because he has given us his only son. Now we're going to dive even deeper into this, but don't miss the face value of what this says right off the bat. This is the very essence of selfless love right here because it is the giving of God's one and only son, Jesus. It is the giving of his son, his only son, we see God's character revealed. The invisible, invisible God we see revealed in Jesus. Now think about this carefully. Why is the action of God the Father giving his son such a big deal? Why does it show us his love? Because that is not just giving his son, it is giving his only son. God the Father is giving his son to people that don't love him and are sinful and unworthy. He is giving his son as a substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, his son is going to be sacrificed instead of the person who justly would be sacrificed. So that in giving the son for them, Jesus does for them something they could not do for themselves to appease the wrath of God. Giving up his son's life for your life. That speaks volumes about God's character. That's love right there, isn't it? Listen to how the Apostle John puts this. It's not John the Gospel, it's 1 John, the letter of John. Chapter 4, verse 9. John says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. How? God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Who's him? Jesus. Love consists in this. You ready for the definition? Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. How is God's love for us revealed? In the sending of his one and only son into the world as a blood sacrifice to pay for the sins of his people so that we might live through him. And how are we to live? That Jesus would be our atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's how we live. We live because he pays the price. Now that's the great love, isn't it? That's great love. But don't miss this. God's love for us is infinite. 
And just don't let that pass by you because that's a big statement. God's love has no edges. It has no boundaries. God's love for us is infinite. But check this out. We're finite creatures, aren't we? Limited in every way. So how can we comprehend something that's infinite? Or if we're finite and he's infinite, how do we grasp this infinite? Listen to the Apostle Paul's prayer to, uh, it's written to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3. He's praying this, but it's also a prayer for us. Look at this. Ephesians 3 verse 16. He says, I pray that he, he's talking about Jesus, may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. Now notice the capital S. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Underline dwell in your hearts. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. Now hang on right there. Hang on right there. It's going to drive some of you crazy that we're in the middle of a sentence and I'm stopping. We'll come back to it in just a few moments here. But I want you to get this. Don't miss it. What Paul is wanting us to accomplish with this prayer. What is it? Who is he talking to? He's talking to God, but he's talking to the Ephesians. He's talking to the Christians in the Ephesian church. He uses the term, check this out, elect. Your translation may even say chosen or the people of God. He says that these chosen people, these elect, will be strengthened with power in your inner being through the Spirit of God. And what else does Paul pray for? He said that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Not just dwell in their hearts, but through faith, through trust, through believing. What does it mean to dwell? You, you understand this. It means to take up residence, to move in, to unpack your stuff, to live life there. Paul prays that Christ would live in the elect, in the chosen, through faith, by the power of the Spirit, given to them in faith. Now, are you with me? I know that's a lot. Are you, you guys awake? This, this is yes, this is no. Okay. All right. Then check out what Paul prays. He says that you, who is the you? He says the chosen, the elect. He says you, the Christians, being rooted and firmly established in his love. Now, this isn't just a, any kind of love. It's not the kind of love I have, say, for my recliner at home. I love that thing. It's not a love I have for my old friend. Now, this is the love that I have studied many times before with you, the agape love. It's a Greek word that this is agape love, the God kind of love. This is the highest form of love in creation. It begins with God and is bestowed on those he chooses. Now, it is a selfless, sacrificial love and unconditional love. It gives without the thought of receiving back. Make sense? This is the kind of love that Jesus uses in John 3.16 when he talks to Nicodemus. And it's the love here that the apostle uses in Ephesians 3. So look what Paul is praying that the Christians here established in agape love, God kind of love. He says, I want you rooted here, firmly, established. What does Paul pray? All right, go back to verse 17. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints 
What is the length, the width, the height, the depth of God's love? And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Now check this out. To know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, please get this. There's so much good here. Oh, don't miss a word of it. Paul is praying that we can be established, a foundation in this agape love, not our love, agape love, that we're able to comprehend, understand with all the saints. Saints here means those who have been redeemed. So if you're, if you're a Christian saved by Jesus, you're a saint. I know it's crazy sounding, but you're a saint. That you would love and know me, that you would know Jesus as Savior and Lord, he's saying. So that we would be able to what? Comprehend the length, the width, the height, the depth, all the edges. Do you notice that? He said this thing's unknowable. It has no edges. I want you to understand you can comprehend the uncomprehensible. You can know this through this kind of love. That's crazy talk. And yet God, he says, this is how you know Jesus. So that we would be able to comprehend the length, the width, and the height, and the depth of God's love. Paul, he's praying here. He was hoping that these Christians begin to comprehend the incomprehensible. Are you with me? Now, isn't God's love infinite? Yes. So how can we know it? Look what it says and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. There is a knowing that surpasses knowledge. If this, surpass, if this surpasses knowledge, what is it? It is a gift from God. Here it is, a relationship with God through his son. Now some of you thought, oh, that's nice. I don't know if I could say anything different that would... To help you, but this is, this is the deep things of God right here. Why do we want a relationship with God? And the crazier things, why would a God want a relationship with us? The partial answer, not the full answer, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. But why would we want that for ourselves? Why would God want us to be full of his, uh, the fullness of him? So get this in your heart. God demonstrates his love for us in the gift of Jesus Christ so that we might be brought into a full relationship with God. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. God demonstrated his love or demonstrates his love for us in the gift of Jesus Christ so that we might be brought into a full relationship with God. We don't have the ability to get there, but he does. In other words, the love of God has a purpose to bring us back into the full relationship with God. That's the purpose so that we will live in a full relationship with God. And notice that the way for us to get into that full relationship of understanding of God's love for us, we have to be in full relationship with him. Now, what I think this is talking about here, for believers in Christ Jesus For the elect, for the chosen, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus on the cross and we have been made right with God. We didn't become right with God like we got good enough. We were made right. We were declared just just 
before a holy God. We were declared righteous. But what we are saying is we're still wrestling, though, with our old sin nature, our old earthly me suit that I'm wearing and that you're wearing too. But one day, (laughs) one day we will either die or Jesus will return to take us home to be with him. I'm looking forward to that day. At that point, we are set free from the temptation and sin we struggle with every day. We will be given a new body, one like Jesus' resurrected body. And it is at that point, check this out, that we will be in full communion with God, full fellowship with God without the weight of sin and death and even the temptation to sin or the ability to sin. Praise God! Because this world's hard! Okay, let's get back to Jesus talking to Nicodemus, John 3, 16. We're saying that God's love is not just great, but that it's infinite. What, what else do we know about God's love? Here it is. God's love is unchangeable. Brothers and sisters, Pastor Ralph, man, that guy cries at the heartbeat. Um, Pastor Jerry, he cries. I cry at this God's love's unchangeable. I'll tell you, I gotta cry a minute. Those guys cry because they get the depth of this. God's love is unchangeable. Because God is immutable. That's a fancy word for saying He never changes. He is totally and completely Himself, and He always will be, and He always has been. Can I just tell you that this one for me is one of the greatest things to know about God's love for us? Because this is where the enemy gets in to me. This is what we mean when we say that God's love is unchangeable. Here it is. God loves us in such a way that nothing we have done or will ever do will alter it. Praise God. Amen? God loves us in such a way that nothing we have done or will ever do will alter it. Now hang with me. Some of you are about to blow a gasket here. You're going, what? No, that's wrong. Stay with me. Here's what I want you to see. The love of God for us demonstrated on the cross through the giving of Jesus, his only son, covers all the sin of those who believe in Jesus as their savior. Do you believe that? Covers all the sin. Because some of you don't. Some of you are worried that it doesn't cover all of it. Like the bad one. You know, the one you're pulling up in your mind. What this means is that there is no sin out there that can tip the scales backwards where God suddenly goes, oh man, you've gone too far now. I just don't love you anymore. It's one one sin too far. Oh, I didn't know that you did that. I didn't know that you were going to do that. Check this out. Some of you believe in a love that's not agape love. Agape love is God knows every sin that we will ever commit. The small ones, the big ones. When he chooses us, nothing that we ever do surprises him. Jesus' blood sacrifice is enough to cover every and all the sin of those who believe. Someone say amen. The blood of Christ, Jesus will pay for all the sins of those who believe in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, there are some that would argue this. They would say, that means, Paul, that I can just live the way I want to and sin and do whatever I want if that were true. 
And that Jesus would still pay for my sins. Now, false teaching alert. Here it is. The Apostle Paul anticipates that error in thinking. Romans 6.1, we won't go there. You can look at it later. Just jot it down. Uh, he says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? He says, God forbid. I would argue back to those people. The person that does that, who keeps sinning and, and says, oh, his, his blood covers everything. Hey, come over here, baby. I'll do this, whatever. If that were the case... They were never to save to begin with. They only had the look of person, the language down. Pastor Steve Lawson has this saying, I love this. He says, the faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. Do you get that? The faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. They were never saved. They were never with us. The writer of Hebrews says, because when you are saved and given the righteousness of Jesus, although you still sin and still wrestle with temptation, you begin to see your sin in the light of the love of Jesus and you want to stop sinning, but you can't. You're trying, you do your best, you're wrestling with it. Yes, you're able to, to defeat that sin, but then this one pops up. You capture that thought, but then this thought comes up. Because you love Jesus, you want to... And you know the love he has for you. you. You do your best to stop sinning. Even though you fail every single day. You fail in so many ways. And I do too. We don't even know all the ways we fail. Do you see the difference between those two worldviews? This is why I weep at this. The love of God is unchangeable towards his people. James Boyce, the great theologian, and pastor that we, he went to be with the Lord several years back. He, he did this, his own translation of this verse. I love it. He, he said it this way. I, I call it the James Boyce version, the JBV. Here it is. He does every, ver, every word of this verse. He says, God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift. That whosoever the greatest opportunity believeth, the greatest simplicity. In him, the greatest attraction should not perish, the greatest promise. But the greatest difference have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Amen? Amen? That's good stuff. And all throughout verse 16, we see this deep spiritual truth that means the gift of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus by God the Father to us, his people, is the greatest gift. It's the greatest gift. We'll never get to the, the bottom of how great this is. For all eternity, we'll worship God for his gift of Jesus there is none greater than God giving his son Jesus to redeem us. Those that didn't care. Now some of you are like, well that's nice. But I'm saying that if, if you don't get this, you're not seeing the depth here. You need to look closely. Let me show you something that might seem very, very small at first. But it means so much when you understand this. Look at verse 16, once again, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
zero in on that phrase. He, he gave his one and only son. That's how the Christian Standard Bible translates that Greek right there. But your translation may say begotten son. That's okay. Or only son. Here's what I want you to see in this qualifier. It's not that Jesus is, the, is created. He's not. We know that from studying John 1. You remember? That Jesus has been with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from before the creation of the world to infinity back. It's also, we know that Jesus is also God and that Jesus is the actual one that John 1 says created the earth. Jesus did at the direction of God the Father by the Spirit. So what does this begotten one or only son mean? Check this out. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the one and only Son and unique Son. Now, this may sound small to you, but I promise you it's not. This is so good. So good. We, we say unique. It means that there is no one like him. No one who is his equal. Why is this important? Because one, Jesus is the Christ, the very image of God the Father. To see him is to see God. Now look in Hebrews 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus, as the Son of God the, uh, Son of God the Father, is the exact impression, expression of the Father. Or how about this when the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1. I added the Jesus in red here. In him, Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of over all creation. Do you see how odd that sounds? He is the image, something that you can see, of an invisible God. For everything was created by him. Who's him? Jesus. Everything, everything, the chair you're sitting on is created by Jesus in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Who is the him? Jesus. Jesus is the son of of God, but he's also God himself. Now don't go in a, don't go getting bad doctrine here. We are not saying that Jesus is God the Father though. You said, Paul, you just said he was God. He's not God the Father. We teach the doctrine of the Trinity here because that is what the Bible clearly teaches. God is the one God and yet he is he is existing in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when we say Jesus is unique, we mean because he is God the Son. There is no other God the Son but Jesus. He is the one in the Trinity. But we don't leave it there. He is unique in another critical way. Now think about this. In fact, if he didn't also have this unique characteristic, Jesus could not have saved us. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the one and only unique Son because he also became a man. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the one and only unique Son because he also became a man. He took on flesh. 
the Baptist Confession of Faith, written way back in 1689, 1689, that our church denomination, the Southern Baptist, was originally founded on, says this, listen to it. When the fullness of time came, he, Jesus, took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. The give, to give oneself is the greatest one gift anyone could ever give. Would you agree? Jesus takes on the flesh of man, even though he is himself God, God the Son. That's what John chapter 1, verse 14 taught. Oh, so you remember back in chapter 1? Don't make me go back to chapter 1. <laughs> we'll, we'll preach it again. Here it is. Remember when the apostle John told us this, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or how about this one from the apostle Paul when he said in Philippians chapter two, verse five, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Are you seeing how unique the gift is to save us? Oh, I want you to see this. You got to see this. To be able to pay the penalty of sin that we as humans owe to God, Jesus had to be both natures, truly God and yet truly man, human. On the God side, he's only as God that he could, he could come in righteousness and live a life we could not live to pay a debt that was infinite because he's God. He can pay an infinite debt. He can pay an infinite price. Since our sin was against a holy and perfect God, the debt we owe for that sin is infinite. It's why people who don't believe in Jesus burn in hell forever. It's infinite. Because they sinned against an infinite God. But because Jesus is God, he is, he is able to live that perfect life. You've got to see this too though. Jesus' uniqueness as the perfect gift of love. If Jesus had only been God, he could not have died. A, because he's God. God is not physical by nature. He's spirit. He is spirit. He could not have died if he'd only remained God. He had to take on the flesh of man to be able to die. He didn't have a body before then. But B, he could not have known the struggles we face as humans in the weakness of our fleshly body that we live in every day. Now be careful. When I say he could not have known the struggle we face as humans, I do not mean that God is not all-knowing. You said, Paul, you just said that. I know I didn't look. It has a different meaning to know. What we mean here is God knowing is that it's talking about him actually experiencing what it's like to live in the flesh. He didn't know just about it, what it was to be human. He lived it. Do you see what I mean? He took on the me suit that you're wearing. He knows the temptations. He knows the hurts. He knows all of that. 
The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.14. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. Amen? And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Jesus is a unique gift from God the Father because he is the one person in all of history that could do what he did. No other person could have. Because both as God and as a human. Now, is your mind blown yet? Mine is. I marvel at the gift of Jesus and his love for us. Even as I preach this, it blows me away. But let's go another step. Another reason why Jesus Christ is God's greatest gift is this. Jesus was a gift to us from God the Father planned before the creation of the world. You thought you were, your mind was blown before. Wait to this, baby. Jesus was a gift to us from God the Father planned before the creation of the world. Listen to what the apostle Peter tells us about this in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. Again, I added the red Jesus. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Or check this out from Peter as well as he preaches to this giant crowd at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. Again, I added the red there. Though he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. I know this blows your mind that Jesus was given to us before the world began, before matter and time and space existed. Here's what that Here's where that leads us. And this is humbling. This is humbling. The sin and the fall of all mankind through that first man and woman, Adam and Eve, was not an event that somehow caught God by surprise. The gift of Jesus to save his people is not God's backup plan. It has always been God's plan. We're not on plan B, folks. We're on plan A. There is no plan B. The gift of Jesus to save his people is not God's backup plan. It has always been God's plan. This is some heavy duty stuff, but you can get this. You can. I told you this would blow your mind, but God knew from the beginning as he set all of this in motion. Before he created you and me or any person, God had predetermined to send Jesus to die for the salvation of his people. The elect is what Paul calls them. We call this the covenant of redemption. We've already said Jesus is the perfect, unique sacrifice to bridge the gap between this all-perfect God and us sinful mankind. However, it is the gift described in John 3.16 that gives us something so great. Let me see if I can explain it this way. When our first father, Adam, fell into sin, all mankind fell with him. Remember what we've studied is that we lost our connection to God. Our spirit within us died. We were dead in our sins, Paul tells us in Ephesians. So what we are left with is this, a hole in our soul. 
avoid right in the middle of who we are. Our emotions, that we need something, but before we hear the gospel, we don't know what the something is. We only know the hole. We try to fill that hole. That vacancy left with seeking anything, everything, whatever will fill this hole. And it doesn't. The power of the gospel message. The good news is that it is the story, the story of Jesus being God come to save us that gives us the knowledge we need. Jesus alone brings this knowledge of who God is. He reveals God, what God is like, what he desires, what he wants for us. Jesus alone shows us the love of God for us. But here's the thing. Knowledge alone won't save us. We need a savior. In other words, if you knew all that, but Jesus didn't come, it still wouldn't work. We need a savior. We simply cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough, even knowing what we know. That means that we have to place our faith in something other than us to save us. Or should I say someone? Faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, is the channel of God's saving grace. Please know that just to understand John 3.16 at a mental level will not save you. It's not enough. Just knowing about the nature of saving faith does not produce anything that is until the Holy Spirit of God applies the gift of faith and we receive that gift, that truth, personally. To believe in someone is the same thing to have faith in someone. That's the same thing. The faith that God gives us is described in the Bible as the evidence of things not yet fully seen. You can find that in Hebrews 1.1 if you want to jot that down. The faith that God gives us is described in the Bible as the evidence. In other words, evidence. Think like a trial. Here's evidence. If you've got faith, that's evidence of things not yet fully seen. We don't see it all. It's just evidence of the faith. What's there? The faith is the evidence. So what are we looking for? We are looking for is evidence that we believe in Jesus as our personal Savior and Lord. Now remember, faith is a gift to you from God. Amen? Faith is a gift to you from God. You didn't come up with faith. He gave it to you. So if what we have been preaching is true and God is all-powerful, he's infallible, If he gives you that faith to believe that all-powerful God is the one who stands behind it. Like a guarantee. God is the guarantor of our faith. When God calls people to believe what he tells them in his word, God calls them to do the most sensible thing they will ever do in their lives. And that is believing in the one and only in the entire universe who is utterly and completely reliable, and that's God himself. Jesus is qualified to save us. That is what John the Apostle means here. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, John says, If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony of God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. You ready for it? 
Here's the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. And the one who does not have the son does not, son of God, does not have life. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If the purpose, you know, our series is called So That You May Believe. That's what John says the purpose is for the book of John, the gospel of John. The purpose of 1 John is this, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. In other words, you can know if you have eternal life because faith. If you have faith, that is evidence of things not seen yet. Let's go back to where we started when we began today. I told you about this. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. You remember that? How do you feel about these belief statements? These doctrines of what these teenagers had come out of being raised in the church with. They believe this about God. Look at them with me. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. False doctrine. It's got an element of truth, doesn't it? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. False doctrine. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. False doctrine. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. False doctrine. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Brothers and sisters, this is false doctrine. Do you see how American religion has altered the gospel here? So if these are all false This is a false faith that these guys have. What does believing, saving faith entail? Two big things. Hear me, hear me. Number one, God commands us to believe that we are sinful and therefore deserve to be separated from his presence in hell, conscious punishment forever. Or to say it another way, that we are sinners. We have no ability to save ourselves because of our sinful condition. And number two, God asks us to believe that even though we are sinful, that he loves us in spite of our sinfulness. And what that means is that God decisively acted to remove our sin to make us perfect by giving us Jesus as the perfect sacrifice to take our place. And through that death of Jesus to make us perfect once more by conforming us to the very image of Jesus Christ. Can I just ask you, Do you believe that you are a sinner, that you sin? Do you believe that you deserve hell, that you deserve to be permanently separated from God forever? Do you believe that God in his deep and infinite agape love sent Jesus to die for you and that through his death brings salvation to you? Because if you do, then God calls you to do something. He asks you to move that faith, to bring it from just inside your head out into the open. To move from just a conviction in this area to that of action. What that looks like is praying to God. Keep your eyes open, but start praying right now. Pray this. Jesus, I do believe these things. Thank you for dying for me. Just put it in your own words. 
Say, I commit all that I am to you, Jesus. I give you my life and my promise to follow you. To follow your teachings for the rest of my life. Can you pray that? Not just words, mean it. I promise to go and do whatever you call me to do. To go and live any place you want me to do. To do any job you want me to do. To talk to anyone you want me to talk to. That's scary. Can you pray that right now? Just pray it in your own heart. Listen carefully. If you make that commitment, God has already given you eternal life. He's already begun the transformation. That wasn't for you. You've been born again, brothers and sisters. You've been born again, regenerated. You were made a child of God. Because if you didn't have the faith, you wouldn't care. Do you see? One day, you'll be made like Christ Jesus forever. Me too. Is that what you believe? Is that where you stand? But if you believe a moralistic, therapeutic deism, the kind of faith that has you on the fast train to hell, but promising to go to heaven, moralistic, therapeutic deism will not save you. Adding a little bit of Jesus into your life will not save you. But belief in the real Jesus will. Let's pray together. God, the Father, just... We come before you and say we see your love for us in the giving of your son, Jesus. Spirit, you have had your way. Come into this place, into our hearts. Move in our midst. You Christians right now, if you would just pray. If you are redeemed by God, you pray. And ask God, is there something in my life right now that is keeping me from taking my faith and putting it into action in where I live? Is it a sin? Is it simply being stubborn? Confess whatever it is right now. The Holy Spirit's speaking to you. If you're a Christian, speak right now. Speak to God. Say, what is it? And then repent of that sin. Use this time to do that. And then when you walk out of here, quit relying on that because you just repented of it. That's you Christians. You keep praying. For you non-Christians, you look up here. Or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, you look up here. Those online, listen close. There are some folks that will tell you, oh, to be a Christian, it's, it's to be saved. There's all kinds of stuff you got to do. It's not. It's not true. Here's what it means to be saved. To believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe that? That He was offered as a sacrifice for your sins? You have been born again. Made a child of God. Now check this out. Made a child of God. It's like if a prisoner is standing before the judge completely guilty and the judge says, hey, Jesus just took your penalty and he points to the prisoner. He says, now you're free. The prisoner still wants to sin. He still wants to do that just like you do. You've been made right. You've been declared right. But listen, I get it. You're like me. You are screwed up. You want some jacked up desires. Me too. 
But slowly what happens is the Holy Spirit of God in you is going to shape you and mold you. Before God, you are, you are forgiven. You are made complete in Christ Jesus. When God sees you, you are perfect and pure. But I get it. You're screwed up like me. I sin every day. Slowly but surely, he's going to teach you to hate that sin, to repent from it. So your daily life will just be a life of repentance. Say, I'm sorry, God, help me to live for you. So just do that right now. If you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins, just give him your life. Say, here's all my sin. I I just turn from it right now. Can you pray that? Put it in your own words. And then pray this. You can have all my tomorrows. You can have my life, Jesus. All my screwed upness, all my decisions. You can even have my job. You can have all my stuff. Let him be king over your life. Do you have it? Then pray this. I love you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for calling me from death to life. I don't know why you chose me, but thank you. I love you. And then end your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray and believe. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.